Maxwell, and you are here with a Messian podcast. Uh, we have a great show for you today. Uh, we we have uh, Mr. Greg Prince from Faith and Fear and Flushing coming to, to join us momentarily. Uh, but before that, as the uh, song begins to fade away, we bring on Mike LaCola from uh, Bay Ridge, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Listen to me, Mike. I'm, I'm setting you up improperly, but, but welcome, Mike. It's always good to have you. Whichever way you choose to bring me on is fine with me. I, I always love talking Mets baseball with you. Always. And without further ado, we'll bring on our featured guest for the evening, and that is Mr. Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing. Greg, how much faith is actually of the uh, the the F A F I F right now? How much? How much? How much faith? Yeah, uh, how much faith is there? I, right I, now? I have I have faith that the Mets will be playing again on Friday night. Beyond that, I couldn't tell you. You know, Greg, I have to say that I I feel as if I I've never seen you as sharp and pointed at certain points as you've been in 2018. So I was wondering if you could go into that, and specifically with Mickey Calloway. You you just seem to very, very sharply not like what you see. Um, there's nothing much to like, to be honest. Uh, you know, Mickey Calloway has talked a good game, and I mean that literally. I mean, he, he was... Terrific to listen to when he was introduced last fall. He presented himself well throughout spring training. And really, every day at 4 o'clock when he meets the media, you know, he seems you know, fairly reasonable and on top of things. It's during the games and after the games where you know, he's no longer that same manager, it seems. Uh, you know, where he seems kind of in over his head and groping for answers thereafter. And uh, I have to say, it's been a while since uh, I've looked at a Mets manager and just been discouraged. And that that's after, what, seven years of Terry Collins, who I know uh, had his ups and downs. And, uh, you know, however, what was it, uh, two and a half years of Jerry Manuel, who literally went up and then down. And, uh, you know, Willie Randolph, who, who guided the team uh, to a division title and then to the uh, world's greatest collapse. But all of those guys, I, I think deep down I had faith in, I had confidence in. I just you know, had the sense that they kind of knew what they were doing. Maybe things wouldn't work out. Maybe I wouldn't agree. I don't really get the sense that Mickey Calloway has any idea what he is doing or that he has an idea, but it's just not something that he is able to execute, that the whole thing is just more difficult than he imagined. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if that means, well, give him time, because, you know, it's, it's clear the guy has the right ideas and ha- has the right stuff, whatever that means. Or is this just, you know what, we're just kidding ourselves, let's... Uh, Let's get this over with and, and, and get on to the next new era. I really don't know. But, yeah, I've, for whatever reason, probably the standings, probably the one loss record. I was in, but let, let's, uh, you know, not kid ourselves. Uh, I was going to say, well, for whatever reason. That's the reason. For whatever reason, I've, I really feel like I've lost patience. And then again, it's nothing personal. I don't know the man. I've never met him. I, I wish him only good. I 
can envision him being a uh, a, a success again uh, somewhere else. It just doesn't feel like it's happening here. Do you think something has to do with? Do you think anything has to do with the transition from the American League, and that he was completely caught off guard being a rookie manager in the National League, Greg? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. Uh, I think it, it seems to catch everybody who is new to the National League. Uh, you know, we talk about strategy and uh, you know a faster-paced game. Uh, you would figure that that's something he would have studied a great deal between October and late March. You know, in, in fact, uh, if I recall correctly, it was, I think it was Sandy Alderson who had said that you know he come very prepared. He had put together, you know, binders or, you know, whatever, however he pre- presented them uh, to show that he had really been thinking about how to manage a team. Uh, he must have missed this chapter because it's, he just seems, you know, again, overwhelmed by it, surprised by it every day. Uh, the fact that the, uh, the, the National League lineup turns over and that there are decisions to be made. Um it's surprising because he seems again. I, I go back to what I just said. You know, when you when you listen to him in the abstract, he seems like a very smart guy and a guy who was working toward this. You know, when he was hired, what did everybody say? The, the Mets, you know, they really got a good one this time. Uh, you know, this was somebody so highly thought of throughout the industry um, on a on a day to day basis. It, it doesn't seem though like he's quite caught up. They, they talk about uh, you know young players, the game moving too fast for them. Uh, maybe if you could send Mickey Calloway down to Las Vegas for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, if it worked that way with managers, maybe that would be the answer. But I don't think it is. So, Mike, Greg brought up an interesting point: how uh, you know Mickey Calloway had time to study. He had plenty of time to prepare for the test. So uh, I remember that Mickey said something about how he was going to watch every single game that the 2017 New York Mets played. Do you think he actually did that? <laughs> uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. Uh, maybe maybe he watched a well a well edited film clip for the season, but uh, game after game after no, I I really don't think so. Uh, but I, I don't want to beat the guy to a pulp. There's not much more I can add to what Greg said. Uh, you know, I already said it last week, you know, his American League sensibilities are just shining through to the point that you need sunglasses. Uh, I, I'll, come in, I'll come to his defense in this manner. You know, the bullpen is horrible. And you know why I always say that players make a manager inconsequential. Uh, and right now, you know, the players are failing him to a certain degree. At the same time, I'll refer back to this plan that Sandy Alderson put in place, this two-pronged attack with Callaway and Island to maximize the pitching uh, before the window closes. And, and, well, here we are. And, no, Mickey Callaway is not uh, proving himself to be a good field manager at all in the National League. Uh, as Greg said, you know, you have turnover and whatnot. So, you know, I'll only beat him down so much. I I, I think the mistake was more organizational uh, than anything, uh, you know, when compared to what 
Mickey Callaway's deficiencies are, you know, as a National League manager. There's there's a few words there, bullpen and organizational. Um, organizational, including you know the Wilpons, will always eventually come back around to the Wilpons on here. So we're gonna we're gonna put a pin in that one. But let's go to the bullpen real quick. Um, Greg, I think he brings up an interesting point, but but not to we're, we're obviously not going to focus uh, uh, so heavily on Mickey Callaway during this podcast. But wouldn't you say that is um, that once again we have a manager that's not necessarily putting the bullpen in a proper position to succeed, even even if there have been glaring mistakes that that just shouldn't have have been been done. But in all honesty, I think I think it was a marriage of of faults here when it comes to the bullpen and Mickey Calloway. Yeah, listen, as Mike said, a lot of it is on the players, and perhaps if relievers like Anthony Swarzak and A.J. Ramos and really the the cast of dozens had, you know, remained healthy in some cases and just, you know, threw, threw the ball where they were supposed to throw it, we'd be saying, well, you know, the bullpen at least, you know, hasn't let them down. But the bullpen has let them down, you know, immensely. So I, I think we probably saw it coming even when – success was in the air early in the season because, you know, no starting pitcher seemed to be going beyond six innings. And I don't know if if Callaway was just, you know, intoxicated by how Cleveland did things in the postseason the last couple of years where bullpenning seemed to push them forward to a certain degree. But, you know, you were wearing guys out and perhaps using their best innings, not that you can know when their best innings are. Um, One thing I've noticed about this organization where the bullpen is concerned, and it might have been Alderson who said it during spring training. It was probably him. that They were excited by the idea of, you know, being very nimble, sending guys down and bringing them up. The idea that, you know, you're going to, I don't know. You're, you're going to use guys. You're not going to let them sit around. You're going to have fresh arms up constantly. That's got to take a toll on the, the, the stability of the bullpen, that on an individual pitcher. I mean, there's always, like, one guy who's kind of a, you know, I don't mean yo-yo in the pejorative sense, but who is yo-yoed up and down from AAA. But it just seems like it happens constantly, you know, be just beyond the, the state of injuries. I mean, Jacob Rame, I believe, has been called up six separate times this year. I don't know how you, you know, get any kind of consistency if one day, you know, almost literally one day you're in Las Vegas, the next day you're in New York, and the next day you're back in Las Vegas. And, you know, we, we've seen a lot of that happen. Now, I, I grant you, you know, you, know, you don't want to leave a, a losing hand on the table and say, uh, you know, we're, we're sticking with these 12 guys or however many on our pitching staff these days. But it, it's just dizzying, and it's just so much mediocrity going up and down the pipeline. Uh, and, and the fact that, that they're sort of, uh, this was sort of the plan. And uh, I imagine that Callaway and uh, Island signed off on it, and I, I think if you're kind of reaping what you sow there. Um, you know, no, nobody is really, you know, it's one of those things we always talk about, oh, you know, you should play the hot hand. Uh, you shouldn't be too strict about who the closer is. But I think there is something to be said for kind of knowing your role 
And I don't know that anybody really knows their role, and yeah, nobody's really come through consistently when they have. Uh, ironically, the one guy who seems to be pitching very well uh, is the guy who we, we all, uh, you know, kind of step back from after the last couple of years, Familia, who, you know, seems to be um, really sharpening his trade value, we assume. But everybody else has been very in and out, up and down. And I don't see where the organization, the manager, are, are really, you know, directing that in a positive way. And it seems that they have, um, they're kind of practicing for when they have Syracuse, except you still have Vegas, number one. And number two, some of them just seem so redundant because you end up making this one move that you probably should have made the day before, but then you end up sending Chris Flexen back and forth and, it's just like I don't even have the specifics in front of me, but it's moment like you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You 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 see these going all the way back to the top down sort of idea that you see an organization completely you know with its head up its ass. Um, it, it's it's just it it is extremely frustrating. But I, I'm curious to see what happens uh, with with Syracuse next year. Obviously, it's going to be a lot easier, but. You know, I, I don't know exactly what what we can get out of out of this year. It's just that right right now, um, I think that's that's where I, I want to segue because there's only so much beating a dead horse we can do with the 2018 season here. So like like we said, like we you know we're previewing the second half, but we're not sure exactly what we're we're looking at for the second half. So Mike. Just, you know, first thing off the top of your head, what are you, broadly speaking, what are you looking for this second half from the New York Mets? <laughs> uh, competency. Look, these guys have 68 games left in the season. They need to go 42 and 26 just to break, just to reach 500, or finish 500, I should say. And they need to play at least 500 baseball from here on out just to avoid 90 losses for the second straight season. So if we're going to set any goals, I'm starting there. I don't want to lose 90 games again. It's kind of frustrating. I don't know where to go with that. But, you know, uh, on a micro and, and macro level, that that's what I'm thinking. Of all these games that they have to make up just to break even. So it is what it is. They're 39 and 59, uh, excuse me, 39 and 55 uh, heading into tomorrow's game. So, you know, they have a lot of work ahead of them if they just want to reach 500 at the very least. You know, Greg, there's a part of me that sometimes just thinks, you know, burn it all down to the ground. Is there any part of you, after having gone through 1993, that kind of feels like this this franchise needs one of those. Uh, you know, 1993 kind of self-immolated. I don't think they, uh, you know, quite had the uh, the tenacity to say, all right, you know, we got to take a good hard look and start uh, getting rid of guys and starting over. I think it was more like, well, we can't have Vince Coleman around anymore, and everybody else uh, kind of begins to wear out their welcome from there. Um. You know, we, we can't ignore the fact that this team's management is in flux. Uh, the fact that you don't have a, a real general manager 
and you don't know that any of the the three tenors, as they've been called, is going to be you know, the general manager you know, that leads you into the offseason and you know, to have a plan. So it, it's hard to want them to uh, burn it all down. I mean, yeah, it is tempting sometimes. But then you come back and say, well, do you really trust these guys? And it's, it's not to cast aspersions on the, on the three co-GMs or whatever you want to call them. Uh, you could even, you know, none of them have the overall authority. They're reporting to Jeff Wilpon. So do you really trust Jeff Wilpon to start, you know, making decisions of that nature? Um, you know, I, I think the Mets always kind of find themselves in a neither here nor there situation if they're not here, which is to say if they don't know that they're going for it, you know, they're not going to suddenly start making trades and signings to climb from 70 wins, 75 to 80 to 85. No, they'll kind of stop as, well, maybe we can get to 80. <laughs> you know, get, get a little lucky from there. And, you know, conversely, they don't say, you know what, let's take our five most saleable pieces, turn them into 20, you know, legitimate prospects and try to get through the next three or four years until, you know, we are – you know, the Houston Astros or Chicago Cubs of recent years. Uh, and I can understand why they don't do that because it's, you know, if you remember, you know, what the Astros were like circa 2012, what the Cubs were like circa 2013. It, it was ugly. And it's bad enough being the Mets in New York when things aren't going well and when things are going well for the other team in New York, it's, you know, the, the Mets feel that pressure. The the ownership certainly does. And people like me are, you know, not going to write nice things, quite honestly. If if well, you know, if they had the Orioles record right now or the Royals record right now, you know, without any guarantee that this is leading somewhere other than the hope that, gee, I sure hope these guys know what they're doing. No, that's just, uh, no, that's just asking for it from your fan base. Uh, I think there's, you know, enough of a core here or, you know, the, the semblance of a core to build around and, you know, to, to get back to, you know, what you started this uh, this segment with. Uh, what is there to look forward to in the second half? You know, if, if we're watching Ahmed Rosario, you know, get above 250 once and for all as, as a batting average and other metrics, uh, if we see Brandon Nimmo continue to do what he did uh, before he was hit in the hand with a pitch and, you know, continue to be among the league leaders you know, wh- where he was leading to see Michael Conforto finally return to being Michael Conforto. If you have those three guys doing what they're capable of, you know, the second half is not so bad. I don't know what it comes down to in wins and losses. That's, you know, sort of a, a ship that has sailed. But, uh, you know, their job, I think, in the second half is, is to give us something to work from for 2019. So if, if we can get a, uh, a, a few everyday players and uh, hopefully our, uh, our four starters who we know of, who knock wood, uh, they're, not, they're not traded or at least not traded stupidly, uh, I think at least we're, we're heading in the right direction. So would you be open to just bringing all the quote-unquote kids up, uh, the Peter Alonzos and the Jeff McNeils? Would you just want to, when you know, talking about, like, being able to, to see some of these kids start to blossom, would you want more of those kids up? 
I think they'll, I think they'll be here sooner or later. Um, you know, I, I, I feel that this is a cliche. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I'm living in Groundhog Day at this time every year. Uh, why don't the Mets bring up Rosario and Smith? Why don't the Mets bring up Nimmo? Why don't the Mets bring up Conforto? They all get here eventually. This year it's Alonzo and McNeil. I look forward to seeing them when, when they are judge ready. I imagine after July 31st when certain players are probably no longer on the roster, that will make some room. Uh, is two weeks going to make a, a huge difference in the life of the franchise? Uh, probably not. You know, at this time last year, I'm, I'm certain uh, we were talking about uh, why isn't Rosario here. And we all looked at Rosario for most of the first half and said, gee, he doesn't really seem to be completely ready for the major league. So, you know, it's a long process no matter what you do. I can understand if they're in the midst of showcasing certain veterans for a little while. I can understand from uh, Callaway's perspective, depending on, on what he's getting from the front office, you know, that he wants to win games. He does, he does not have the luxury of saying, you know, I've got a track record here, so I'm just going to play, you know, such and such kid to get him experience, a record be damned. No, he's got to get some wins. So I can see if he wants to lean on Wilmer Flores, for example, as opposed to getting Dom Smith starts, I know why he's doing it. It may not be to Dom Smith's best interests and long-term interests for the franchise, and that's, you know, another conversation, but I, I can see why they're doing it. You know, this, you know, again, I, I think it's almost an, an abstract concept to say, play the kids, don't, don't worry about wins and losses, development. And thing. You know, these are professional athletes. They've been competing all their lives. They're trying to win. Uh, I, I can't really blame them for wanting to go with a slightly better known quantity in a given game. I mean, at some point you do throw up what amounts to the white flag and say, okay, you know, bring up, and again, it's not to say those guys are the equivalent of surrender, but where you kind of say, you know what, I don't know that they're going to win now, but, you know, let's see what they can do. The, the journey starts here. Uh, I think we're maybe a couple of weeks shy of it, and in the long run I don't think that really matters, but, yeah. I think those guys will be here. I think everybody's favorite Binghamton outfielder, Tim Tebow, has a pretty good chance of being here, too, uh, not not till September. And there's probably some other guys uh, from between Las Vegas and Binghamton whose, whose names uh, I'm not familiar with uh, who will, you know, let's put it this way, once McNeil and Alonzo are here and putting aside Tebow, you know, new names will replace them on our, our wish list. And, you know, the cycle will go on unless uh, there's, there's a dependent race uh happening and uh, there's no kind of race happening. Well, I, I think they've been playing McNeil at third base, but um, I think one way or the other, Todd Frazier and Estrubal Cabrera being on the team are going to prevent uh, McNeil from coming up. Um, so, yeah, like you said, you know, you, you have to showcase these guys. But uh, before moving on in terms of another veteran infielder, Greg, Jose Reyes, What's what do we what do you do about that this situation? Uh, I think Jose Reyes is uh, to 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 uh, paraphrase John McGraw uh, late in his tenure as Giants manager. Like I am, I am like the uh, the the flagpole in center field. I have always been here and I will always be here. It, it is beginning to feel, uh, you know, they they had an idea with Jose Reyes that he had some baseball left in him that perhaps he had some mentorship in him. 
Uh, I have honestly no idea if behind the scenes he is a fantastic influence on Rosario and perhaps other young players. I have no idea if he's not a good influence. Uh, I think those those sorts of things probably come out more when a player is doing well. Um, I find it interesting that when, when Reyes was, you know, a, a representative Major League Baseball player, uh, both with the Blue Jays to a lesser extent with the Rockies and then home with the Mets again, uh, you know, you saw a lot of Instagram and a lot of Twitter from Jose Reyes. This year he's stayed off of that because what are you going to, you know, what are you going to put out there for yourself when you're batting 168 or 186? And, uh, you know, your performance kind of speaks for itself. And, you know, I've written about, you know, that Jose Reyes is probably the last favorite player I'll ever have, uh, which is not a popular favorite player to have in 2018. Certainly was 10 years ago, <laughs> 15 years ago when I sort of fell in love in a baseball sense with him. Um, all, all that being said, I don't know why he is starting every day at third base other than Todd Frazier is, you know, obviously not available to start every day at third base. Uh, I don't know why you you wouldn't, uh, you know, be a little more creative. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think it takes that much creativity to play Wilmer Flores a little bit at third base and give Dom Smith some at-bats. I mean, other than maybe just a, a manager's default sense that he has to play veterans because at least they know how to do things. And, you know, honestly, I think Reyes has been a little bit better of late, but, you know, we're grading on the curve here. You know, I, I think barring an onslaught of talent and health, you know, I think Reyes is here till the end of the year, uh, which is, you know, in a sense fine with me. You know, I, I would love to think that a major league team could, could keep one guy around who's been with the organization, if not uninterrupted, but mostly for the last 15 years. You know, my, my dream, and this doesn't have anything to do with building – the franchise is packed up, and my dream is that one day in September, uh, you know, starting at third base will be number five, starting at shortstop will be number seven. You know, one give me one more day, one more inning of uh, of Wright and Reyes together, and uh, let them ride off into the sunset if, if if that is their fate. But I, you know, that that's just a a personal obsession of mine. Um, you know, Reyes is well, whatever he's batting at one eighty four, I think, which is more or less his high point for the year. Maybe he's just getting it going. Last year he had a terrible start. This year the terrible start lasted longer. Um, you know, I'm not going to pile on. Uh, I'm Like I said, he's, he's a player I've always loved and, uh, you know, welcomed back reluctantly. He's been a solid citizen as far as I can tell. And I would love him to be able to go out, you know, if not on a high note exactly, at least on a middling note. And that's uh, tough, both uh, where the team is this year and where his performance has been. And, you know, if, if by, again, i thinking when Jeff McNeil gets here and the fact that he's playing a number of positions at Las Vegas, you know, you'll see more McNeil and less Reyes. And, you know, well, the circle of life goes on. The circle of life and the circle of Reyes. It seems like he's got nine lives at this point, Mike. It does. And I think uh, the Mets are just holding on to him so they can give him, well, I guess what they feel would be a proper send-off. I, I think they do want to make a day out of it. And I think that's why he's still here and he will remain here. Uh, again, I, I, you know, Callaway I put on Alderson, by the way. But, you know, this is something where, again, I feel the front office is making decisions that aren't in the best interest of 
the team and their performance on the field. You know, think think about Fred Wilpon protecting Terry Collins. I think Rays is being protected for whatever reasons other than baseball, et cetera, et cetera. I just need a president of baseball operations to separate ownership from baseball. That's what I want. Yeah, now you've said uh, numerous times recently, and uh, I, I can't disagree with you on that. But, um, you know, we've we've said so much on them, and, and uh, the well bonds, I just feel so exacerbated. So I want to pivot back to a bright spot with the 2018 Mets, um, and that is Jacob deGrom. Uh, uh, Greg, you just said that, uh, you know, Jose Reyes was your last favorite player. Do you think that Jacob deGrom may one day, you, you may say that about this guy, if he doesn't get traded? Uh, well, if he's, if he, if he's traded, I, I, I would be pretty distraught just uh, on principle. Uh, you know, I, I would put uh, deGrom in that category of kind of uh, – Situational favorite player. I've had a number of those over the years, where for uh, you know a year, a few months, I say, "Boy, he's my favorite player." Um, certainly, you know, one of the reasons, the best reason to watch the 2018 Mets. I don't think there's really any doubt about that. Um, I was about to say they're a different team when he pitches, but that's the problem. They're not a different team. Uh, you know, we we used to say that about you know Santana. Uh, when the Mets weren't very good, but you know when Santana pitched, he could sometimes lift them to victory. Uh, we said it about Dickey. You know, going back, you know, certainly that was Seaver's signature, and Gooden's. Spent uh, some other guys over the years. Uh, Degrom is doing everything he can, and you know it is, I believe, clear. You know, not only the the Player of the Year in the, in Mets land. Uh, which he's been, I think, several of the years that he's been here. Uh, I will go one further, barring a incredible transformation of somebody else and perhaps, you know, DeGrom no longer being a Met. I mean, he is pretty much the player of this decade, the 2010s, where the Mets are concerned. Not not that that's an actual thing, but I was thinking about it recently. Uh, you know, we, we are seeing, you know, what, one of the most phenomenal seasons by a Met pitcher it's hard to tell if you've, you know, grown up looking at wins and losses. Uh, if, if Degrom's season hasn't broken us of that habit, uh, nothing ever will because he is the best five and four pitcher, which is, uh, you know, close to two thirds of a season in that has ever lived. I would have to imagine, and uh, you know, it's, it's a pleasure watching him. Uh, you know, I, I kind of the other day on the blog kind of went through all the scenarios of no matter what they do at this point, like, you know, what will go wrong, uh, how they handle Jacob deGrom, you know, what they trade him for, what they don't trade him for. Um, you know, there, there is the chance that he stays and continues to excel for several years and the Mets benefit from that. And, you know, I, I think that's a, a fair chance of that happening. I, I, I was thinking, you know, if, if you go back to the year they traded Dickey after he wins the Cy Young Award, uh, I mean, that was the definition of trading highs. That you knew, no matter how much you loved R.A. Dickey, and I was certainly in that legion of people who loved R.A. Dickey, 
you're never going to see a, what, it, what it was, what, 20 and 6? Here, here I'm quoting one loss records again after just dismissing them, but uh, just for shorthand purposes, because I don't remember his ERA and strikeouts, all the other numbers offhand. You know, a guy who had a Cy Young season, no doubt about it, and we traded him. And it was a sensible trade. Uh, we got Noah Syndergaard, we got Travis Darno, and, uh, you know, whoever else. John Buck and Wilmer Becerra and, you know, whatever else happened. Um, the point being that we, we understood, I think, that it was okay to do this because this was trading at peak value and you were never going to have another 2012 out of R.A. Dickey. The question is, would you ever have another 2018 out of Jacob deGrom? I think there's a hell of a better chance to have more 2018s or, you know, reasonable facsimiles out of Jacob deGrom for the next few years then you will, you know, whatever, you know, he was at the time, a 38-year-old knuckleballer, uh, asking him to, you know, replicate uh, his greatest season. Uh, you know, which, which, of course, leads us back to uh, the agent, uh, Brody Van Wagenen, you know, t- kind of clearing his throat the other day and saying, you know, gee, it sure would be nice if we can have a long-term partnership here, and if not, you know, maybe the Mets want to consider trading my client. Uh, which, you know, just you know, made my the hairs on my arms stand up and not, not in that fun way when things go well because anytime you start learning the identity of the agent of, of players you really like, uh, nothing good ever really comes of it. And, you know, that, that's what led me into thinking of, okay, what are all the worst-case scenarios that are going to happen here? Because it just, uh, and God knows, uh, pe- pe- people like me and Mike uh, t- t- tend to... Uh, not need much reason to uh, recall June fifteenth, nineteen seventy-seven. But honestly, I, I just began to get chills remembering <laughs> what it was like in, in, in the months leading up to Tom Seaver being traded, and how once this thing kind of takes on a life of its own, uh, it's hard to stop. Sort of like with you know, to, to use a far more recent example, uh, you know, we were constantly hearing from Scott Boris, and we knew sooner or later things were not going to end well between the Mets and Matt Harvey. Uh, obviously, there were other factors involved. Uh, when we, you know, before they traded Dickey, uh, you know, there was what, what, kind of a war of words where him and the Mets were concerned. Uh, it, things like this just, just never turn out well. But then again, the Degrom sort of has broken the mold in so many ways. Maybe, you know, this was just kind of a wake-up call, and a they will get together on some sort of, you know, extension, uh, and b it won't blow up in our faces like all the other lucrative deals for players we've loved that uh, lasted too long, frankly. But, uh, you know, we didn't want to let them go either, which is understandable because we're fans. So, you know, he is, uh, again, when when I say my my last favorite player, I I think there's just something different when you get to be at this stage of life as I am uh, after watching a team for close to 50 years uh, to, uh, you know, being of a, a, a mindset to uh, want to put posters over, over your, uh, if not over your, your, your bedroom wall, then, uh, you know, in your mind anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, short, short of doing that, short of having that, that sort of uh, allegiance to an individual at this stage of my life, um, you know, very fond of Jake DeGrom, pitching for the New York Mets, and uh, hope he will continue to and, and look forward to him uh, hopefully uh, finishing up a Cy Young season in 2018. Yeah, and he's certainly making his case about it, but it, it, there is that level of, of um, 
you know, misunderstanding when it comes to the national scene and what Jacob DeGrom is doing. Uh, you know, MLB Network, Mike, was having a, a talk about how Jacob DeGrom, you know, the host was telling the baseball guys, the players, uh, who are from a certain different era, of course, but he was saying, like, look at, like, the ERA is almost, is, is basically .75 higher, uh, lower, excuse me, than anybody else's ERA. And even at some point in the conversation about it, you know, Dan Plezak said that Jacob DeGrom hadn't separated himself from the pack, and Harold Ra- uh, Harold Ramos, but Jesus, Harold Reynolds uh, said that where is where are the wins? And it's like, for one, forget about whether or not we should be arguing whether wins and losses matter. It's the fact that Harold Reynolds goes to work in Secaucus and had that question when it came to a pitcher for the New York Mets. I didn't understand that, for one. But besides that, do you think that, like, Jacob DeGrom could keep Let's say he stays with the Mets and he keeps doing what he does, but the, the winds don't come around and the trend continues. He still should win the Cy Young Award. We, all, we would all believe it, but does he still? Oh, tough call. I mean, it used to be standard where a Cy Young Award winner, you know, achieved 20 victories at least, and then a guy named John Denny came along and won with 19 and I was a little astonished over that. Uh, the standards have dropped over time. Uh, I'm certainly not watching the same game I was back in the 70s or the 80s. I'll tell you that. Uh, with a little bit of luck on a bad team, you know, wins are not as important. They're, they're not looked at as importantly these days. But in in this case, they might help him along if he, if he can string together a bunch of wins and, and and just put some polish, some more polish on these numbers that are just getting uh, dusted over in in, in this in, in this poor season. So is there a chance? Yeah, I mean you have some freak analysts out there who you know if you torture numbers long enough you can get them to say anything, and that's where we are. Uh, alternative statistics. Uh, are more and more driving, you know, decisions and 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 voters for awards are no different. Uh, the whole body of the Hall of Fame voting is changing, and so are the, the, the body of voters who decide MVP and Cy Youngs and whatnot. Uh, you know, so guys like me and Greg, we're the dinosaurs. We're fast becoming the dinosaurs. Uh, we're watching that asteroid just, you know, get bigger and bigger by the day. Uh, so I really don't know what to say in that respect. Uh, it's just that when it comes to DeGrom, there's two sides of me. One's the emotional uh, side of me where I'm a huge fan of his. And I know I don't want to see him go. I don't want to see him uh, pitch for another team. I want him to stay right here. But, you know, there's the other side of me who is poisoned by the business aspect of this game. And I keep reminding myself that he's 30 years old, and I, I can certainly see the Mets making a huge mistake and paying him beyond the age of 35 years old. And I'm not so sure if his agent is going to agree to that. Uh, I, you know, do I want to retain him? Sure. Do I want to give him his price? Sure. But I, I don't want to do anything stupid at the same time and handcuff ourselves down the road. So no, I don't want to spend a penny on him beyond the age of 35. So what we're really talking about here is a three-year extension, you know, and sprinkling some sugar on these next two seasons. Uh, but 
if you want to win, you got to act with conviction, and sometimes you just got to make cold-hearted decisions. The truth of the matter is the Mets have to do, or they don't have to do a damn thing. You understand me? DeGrom is their property for two seasons yet. I mean, they can totally mismanage the situation, which is more than likely, or, or, or just, you know, bumble it all together. But the fact of the matter is they don't have to do a damn thing for two seasons. And, and that's the colder side of this game. So, you know, uh, depending on what time of day you're talking to me will depend on what side uh, of the argument you're going to get from me. I'm caught in the middle. I really am. Because, again, I'm a big fan of DeGrom. But at the same time, I, I, I need improvement out of this team, and I see a way out of this. And if they can strike the right deal, I'll trade them in a heartbeat. But I have to be overwhelmed. I won't settle for anything. There's no need to trade them just because his agent spoke up. But I, I... If I am indeed overwhelmed, you know, I speak in the first person, but if I'm overwhelmed with the deal, I'm taking it. I'm taking it because I want to make this team better. Yeah, I can't argue with you there. Uh, You know, just as long as they make the right deal, uh, which, again, we're pretty skeptical uh, that this team can do so. Um, I want to pivot to 2015 because we are on episode 15. Um, I think that, you know, I think that the number one thing is with uh, the 2018 New York Mets right now is um, we don't see a necessarily a way that they're going to avoid 90 losses. Uh, we're very interested to see the way they go about the, the next couple weeks. Um, we have to be floored by DeGrom uh, to, to, make, to have anything uh, uh, to, for him to be moved. Um, and I, I think if you if you look at it, most likely DeGrom is going to stay, but I think you're going to see Frazier go. You're going to see, uh, well, Frazier needs to play. Uh, he needs to not be injured. Um, as Dribble Cabrera is going to go, which is, uh, you know, it's a shame that we suck so badly because he's having such a, an amazing season. Um, and, you know, some other assets, will Wilmer Flores go? I, I, I don't know. Um that that that's actually a good segue to to go over to the 2015 New York Mets, Greg Lola Flores. Uh, we we may come around uh, to to him eventually, finally being used as a trade chip because he he's a very talented player as we see. But um, you know, when thinking about 2015, uh, I it it really is hard to not go directly to Wilmer Flores, and and he's going to have that place in Mets history for the rest of his life. Yeah, Wilmer Flores uh, could win the Nobel Prize for, you know, I don't know, chemistry, physics, literature, whatever they get the Nobel Prize for. Uh, and I can just imagine Steve Gilds being there in uh, in uh, Stockholm, uh, Oslo, wherever they do this, uh, to interview him and ask Wilmer, you know, who won the Nobel Prize, how does this compare to that walk-off home run against the Nationals after you thought you were traded? Uh, you know, it's just his... Uh, his signature moment uh, as a baseball player. Uh, I won't speak for his life uh, outside of baseball, but I have to imagine it's pretty much uh, his signature moment as a human being. Uh, No offense to his family and what they mean to him. Um, You know, Wilmer Flores three years ago was kind of an unproven commodity. Uh, You know, for rewinding, remember he was the starting shortstop most of that first 
but uh, at that point, I guess it was almost four months of the season were done. Uh, it was almost uh, not exactly revolutionary, not exactly innovative, but it was something the Mets wouldn't have done previously, which was play a guy who was best known for his bat at a defensive position because it was either Wilmer or Ruben Tejada, and Ruben Tejada never really you know, got a grip on hitting in a consistent way. So, uh, you know, here we are three years later, and Wilmer Flores still doesn't have a position. Just uh, first base more days than not, and uh, he still is hitting dramatic home runs and still isn't quite an everyday player. Uh, so there you go. And yes, and he may be a trade ship this time around too, although I, I think he is, uh, I have no idea whether uh, he would go or not, and I'm not really sure uh, what, A, what you'd get for him, and B, uh, be perfectly honest, how I would feel about that, because I've, you know, I, I've been at City Field for two of his four walk-off homers, not, not the uh, Tears of Joy one, but... Uh, the last uh, two of the last three, the one against the A's last year, the one against the Phillies the other night. Uh, these are great moments in the life of a fan. But I also have the sense that, you know, we know what we can get out of Wilmer Flores, and maybe he is more valuable to somebody else who can give us something for him. Uh, which I guess, you know, to, to get back to your, you know, the, the, the topic here, 2015 for the 15th episode, um, it's amazing how, how quickly the – Current Mets don't look a whole lot like the team that won the National League pennant just three years ago. So you think about it, uh, Flores, Conforto, um, three starters, uh, Matt Syndergaard, and of course, DeGrom, Familia, until he is pushed out the door. And as far as those who played in the postseason and played a major role and who are playing today, that's it. You have Ploiecki, who was on the roster but didn't play at all. You've got guys like Wright and Darno, who are on the DL, who played but are not a factor. Wheeler, who was never a factor in 2015, but, you know, was also set to be traded. Uh, you know, that this is, you know, what I say before, circle of life. Um, you know, the, the, this is uh, how it goes in baseball today. Maybe it's always gone like that in baseball. I don't think the 69 Mets were intact as a unit by 1972 either. I'm not sure. Uh, I think they had a few more guys still around, but uh, by 74, you, you were down to a handful of players. Uh, the 86 team, uh, you know, by the time you got to the 1990, there were only about uh, a third of them left. So I, I guess that's kind of normal. You, you would have wished that, like those teams uh, from the past uh, championships, that they had managed to at least evolve and compete. And that didn't happen for the 2015 team beyond one year. And even that kind of took some fancy, uh, some fancy phone calls uh, and waiver wire transactions and so forth to kind of keep that team afloat. Um, No, when I look back at 2015, uh, well, two things strike me. Uh, One this time of year, which is, you know, you never know who's going to be on the team until they're here, because I, I I often feel like I'm I'm talking friends and readers off the ledge when they say why won't, and again well, I'll use I'll use Sandy Alderson obviously he's not the guy anymore but why won't they do something why won't they make a trade why won't they bring somebody in, well you know they eventually did, and it paid off you know at this time three years ago just before uh, the Wilmer Flores saga took flight 
know, we were bringing in Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson and bringing up Michael Conforto, uh, probably reluctantly from Double A, and then you know m- making moves for Tyler Clippard, which you know wasn't so bad until it was, and eventually Addison Reed, and um, of course you know Cespedes. So uh, you know you never know what's going to happen in that regard. I mean that was the Cespedes. It was obviously the flip side of the whole Flores thing. Flores, uh, you know, they they don't trade for Carlos Gomez. Well, okay, well, we still got to get somebody. Who are we going to get? We're going to get a guy who is going to carry us the rest of the way. Uh, still one of the most phenomenal stretches any Mets uh, position player or pitcher has, has ever had. And, uh, you know, the other thought I've had recently about 2015 is just, you know, even though the success has seems to have been kind of fleeting. We are probably in a different era altogether, despite some overlap uh, of personnel. We, we, we can't say we're really part of this great successful era that 2015 touched off because it didn't last uh, until 2017 even. Um, that was a really important pennant for this franchise to win. Uh, you, you had a, a whole swath of Mets fans of whatever age uh, you, you care to date it back to. But basically, you know, anybody who became a Mets fan in the wake of 2006, let's just say, had never seen the Mets win anything. Anybody who became a Mets fan, and God help them if they did, you know, after 2008, never saw the Mets have a winning record. And, and certainly anybody who became a Mets fan, you know, just past the, the turn of the century, never saw the Mets in the World Series. And you know, as intense Mets fandom is to have no reward, to have really no sense of contention for six consecutive seasons, as was the case, then to ask people to maintain this fealty, this loyalty, this allegiance, um, was just asking a lot. So, you know, whether Sandy Alderson knew it or not, that, you know, if we get Cespedes, you know, we are going far. And, you know, obviously it was a roll of the dice. Everything's a roll of the dice. Um, the payoff was worth it. And, you know, I, I guess Michael Fulmer, you know, has had some success. He's had some injuries. I'm not sure what he's up to at this very moment. But, uh, you know, if Michael Fulmer had gone out and won five consecutive Cy Youngs, it still would have been worth it because, you know, this team needed to put some success on the board. And, you know, I think you have a whole generation of Mets fans who somewhere in their souls they're sated because they got to see what a World Series looks like, got to see what a postseason looked like, got to feel what an August and September where every game is important felt like. And you 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 have to you know, you have to bring water into the Sahara. You have to give people something to chew on and something to think that, hey, we could ever do that again and it's great for people like me to tell folk tales about 1969 and 1986 and other great years that I grew up with and that Mike grew up with, but you got to feel it for yourself. I understand that. And 2015 gave Mets fans, you know, something to feel that if nothing else, no matter, you know, you again, you, you can't live off that forever if you're the Mets franchise, but if nothing else, you say, all right, you know, Got something out of this this year. I got something, you know, from being a Mets fan besides Ajita and angst. So, uh, you know, it was a great time. It's, it's I'm sorry that it has not continued, you know, more than past 2016. But, uh, you know, it was, 
you know, I was saying before about the player of the decade. I, I don't think uh, – I, I would think if you were to give out an award, uh, you know, pending what happens in 2019, and it'll be the 50th anniversary of 1969, so who knows. But uh, I, I think if uh, you would unanimously give 2015 the uh, year of the decade, shall we say, where the Mets are concerned. So uh, it was a great time. That it was, and you know, it's understandably, it's understandable why I'd want to get off 2018 a little quicker than normal. Uh, but we actually just uh, got one of our our own on the podcast, and uh, Rich Sparago uh, just came around. And uh, before I introduce Rich, I, I just wanted to mention, Greg, you know, you you brought up a lot of different points regarding the 2015 New York Mets. Have you know how it kind of ties into the 2018 team? And so, uh, Rich, what I wanted to ask you about, something that I completely missed when talking about the 2018 team, and that is Joanna Cespa that's playing first base right now. So if you want to start with that and segue uh, to 2015, we can kind of just intertwine all of it together. Sure, and uh, good evening, everyone. And um, so talking about, about Cespedes at first base, well, you know, I'm trying to come up with an analogy in my head and can't really, but, but my thoughts on it are as follows. I abhor playing guys out of position. Seldom does it work, especially with the Mets. I mean, we think about the times the Mets have tried to do it. Um, it. It just seems like a disaster waiting to happen, and recent examples would point to that. You know, Michael Conforto, in center field, sure, he's not abysmal, but he's not comfortable out there. There are balls he doesn't get to, and it's really not his fault, so you have that. Um, you have examples of, you know, Flores playing first base where on a, a bunt play doesn't, doesn't know what to do, doesn't cover the bag appropriately, so you have that. Going back to Todd Hundley in left field, which was a disaster, so I'm generally against playing guys out of position. However, when you have the type of investment that the Mets have in Cespedes and you know what his bat means to the team, the record with and without him in the lineup is is so starkly different. Um, And then you look at the fact that his primary issue are his legs. And um, and then you look at that and you say to yourself, well, maybe you have to consider playing somebody out of position in this case, because you need this guy in the lineup and, anything you could do to try to minimize the potential of a re-injury, you have to do it. This is one where, you know, past history goes out of, out the window. Um, conventional wisdom goes out the window because you have to have this guy in the lineup. And if you could reduce his potential for injury by playing him at first base, I'm all for it. And let's face it, there's nobody playing first base these days who's going to make you forget uh, Keith Hernandez, uh, you know, Flores, I heard Greg talking about Flores, fine, you know, whatever he is, maybe he's a utility player, maybe he's a bench player, who knows what he is, but he hasn't really distinguished, distinguished himself, nor has Dom Smith, who basically just seems basically lost, so putting Cespers at first base, you have nothing to lose, so I'm for it, um, and then going back to, to 2015, and, you know, my thoughts on that, well, you, you know, it, it's hard to really add to what Greg said, it, it was a year that we needed as Mets fans. Um, it had been 15 years since they had been to the World Series. Um, my daughter, Greg, is a perfect example of everything you talked about. 
you know, someone who had never seen the team do anything other than 06. Um, we all know how that ended, but she had never seen the team go to the World Series. So um, it helped that generation. And everything fell right. You know, Greg referenced the Uribe-Kelly Johnson trade. What, how well did that work out? The Cespedes deal, you know, the Wilmer Flores not being traded. So we didn't get Gomez here, but then we ended up with, uh, with Cespedes. So, you know, it, it was a magical year. And when you think about it, right, teams that win the World Series, they kind of have, often have that magical overtone. You know, the 1969 Mets, everything seemed to break right. You know, if you watch the highlights of that World Series, you see the, the various breaks that went their way. Um, you know, look at the Cubs. They had they were down three to one, and it just seemed like there was a divine hand guiding them to that one. So it was the Mets' year to have things break the Mets' way until they didn't, as Greg said, right? So, um, so yeah, it was a magical season. It, it may be uh, for those of us who have been following the team for a while. It gave us a dose of sanity in an otherwise um, insane baseball lineage that you know that that we needed and for those who had never seen it it helped cement them as Met fans which was good um and now you know again it just seems like it was eons ago you know it just seems like wow less than three calendar years ago this team this New York Mets team beat the Dodgers on the road in the NLDS swept the Cubs and went to the World Series, and we were at World Series games at City Field less than three years ago, and you know it, it's it's taken such a turn that it's almost hard to fathom. You know, it's almost hard to fathom how precipitously they've fallen. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for, but those are my reflections. No, it certainly is, and and yeah, like you said, in terms of uh, um, 2015, like everybody's saying, it it, it was the moment to, for a generation to see the Mets in the World Series and to see City Field in the playoffs. Um, that, you know, I, there, there was that, that crescendo where we understood that we were there when Joanna Cespedes hit that home run against the Dodgers. And that, that was that moment when it was like, all right, we've made it, we're here, and this is an actual series going on right now. Um, uh, David Wright got a chance to hit a, a home run in a World Series uh, in the only game that we won in that series. Um, I, I got a chance to go down for basically what sealed the deal regarding the division in Washington, and I got to see the one of the craziest comebacks I've ever seen, which was when we were uh, down 7-1 to the Nationals and won with the Kirk Neuenheis home run. I, I remember that entire time. I was literally on the edge of my seat you know, half standing, half sitting, all the way up top at Nationals Park, not wanting to move or do anything because something was working. And, and until until they made it out, I wasn't going to do anything. And it was just one of those baseball moments that you have where you're just you're, – I, I wasn't talking to anybody. I wasn't with anybody. I was just in my own zone uh, by myself up in, in the upper deck of, of Nationals Park and being, my, you know, in my own Mets – Mexican world, and it was uh, it was fantastic. And of course, the next night was great. But the the most memorable the the, the most memorable uh, moment was was most certainly that that uh, the six runs we we scored mostly on walks um, 
and, and to really delve into that really quickly, but what I loved about that was was that the umpires were making them throw the umpires and the Mets were making the pitchers throw strikes. They were they they were nibbling so much, but they were like, you're you're not hitting your corners, and if you're going to keep nibbling, I'm not going to give you your calls because these these aren't strikes. So I I really just liked the entire way the the whole thing played out. And one one of the things I also loved the way I ended that night was in the hotel room. I watched that inning through the the Nationals broadcasters who who. It was just kind of fun to see the opposition play play uh, play out through that one, um, but but I, I'll I'll segue. I know we're kind of mixing it up a little bit. I'm kind of we're trying, let's talk a little bit about the 2015. Actually, you know what? Before I segue to to, to Mike and and Mike, I'll have you take on Giannis Cespedes first base and the 2015 New York Mets. But I'd like to quickly wrap up 2018 with Greg and Giannis Cespedes at first base, please. Uh, if they feel he is capable of, of standing there and bending down and feeling the occasional ground ball and stretching for throws uh, that might be going awry, uh, I'm willing to give it a shot. There's really nothing left to lose at this point. And, uh, you know, you have Nimmo, you have Conforto, and, you know, what, Batista, Dom Smith, uh, your fourth outfielder, Ty Kelly. Um Depending on how healthy he is, it's you know like like uh, Rich said, uh, you know playing out of position. It's it's tough to watch. It's tough to win. But if they're confident, and you know what, it's not like we're gonna you know lose ground in the pennant race. Uh, give it a shot. <laughs> it's uh, you know we we might uh, we might discover we have something here. You know, really the only relatively comparable recent uh, example we have is Jay Bruce playing first base. And Jay Bruce, you know, is not a great first baseman. He's on a first baseman period. So um, I'll just be happy to have his, his bat back uh, in the, if you'll excuse the expression, designated hitter position for the next three days most likely. And uh, if they feel uh, he, can, he can handle first base, um, give it a shot. Uh, I don't know that he will have a renaissance in that uh, position. Uh, the one thing I, I think uh, I am, I'm willing to call it a fresh start, but boy, Cespedes was having a terrible year. <laughs> well, you know, I had some big hits early when, uh, you know, everything was going great for, for everybody. But uh, like Bruce, like Conforto, uh, you know, just part of an unproductive outfield uh, as long as he is out there. I hope, uh, I hope he packs his bat, and I uh, hope first base doesn't kill him. There you go. Uh, Mike, uh, if you want to take the entire uh, Rochester garbage plate. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to make this as quick as possible. Uh, Greg, uh, Rich, you guys are right when it comes to suspicious. There's just a part of me who I, I, I still want to extract my money's worth out of this guy. I want him in the outfield. Because he has a superior arm, and I want I, I want to utilize that. I need that out of him. That's part of the reason why I wanted the Mets to sign him. Uh, that being said, it is what it is. You know, it's not like uh, we're in a pennant race here. As a matter of fact, we're entering tomorrow night's game uh, tied for last place with the Marlins. So whatever's clever at this point. 2015, 
what a great year, man. It was a lot of fun the way it, it ended, you know, highs and lows. And it's not unlike this season. I mean, the Mets did a lot more damage to themselves this season. Uh, but when you think back in April of 2015, they got off to a good start. And I always, you know, say you can't win pennants in April, but you certainly can lose them. And they had a good start in April of 2015, and they had a good start in April of this year. And then in May of 2015, they played below 500, and in June they went below 500. And then in July, you know, they put a little pep in their step. Grandison got them over the top, you know, throughout the month, and they finished the month one game over 500. All right, this year May has been disastrous. June has been disastrous. But July, they're 7-7. Seven and seven. You know, so in some ways this season is mirroring 2015 but it's you know, not likely to conclude the same way. Uh, so that being said, you know, I, I, did, I just need better decisions. I'll just always point back to that. I need better decisions. But 2015 was a lot of fun, and I, I, I think us older fans needed that reinforcement. Uh, I, I think it may have been a little bit more important to us than it might have been to, to the younger crowd, uh, only because... You know, they're still trying to develop that callus that you need to be a, a, a Met fan, whereas, you know, you get up in age, you get a lot more jaded in life. So it, it was refreshing. I think we needed it. You know, you guys said that, and, and I concur. Here, here. Here's to the 2015 New York Mets. May they live for all time. Um well, you know what? I'm sorry. We'd be even mm-hmm. remiss if we didn't mention Daniel Murphy and that incredible history-making tear. I just wanted to throw that you out You know what's there. so interesting? What's so interesting about that is I was looking at the, the page right here, and Daniel Murphy is still uh, 11 in quote-unquote war for for the top 12 players uh, there. there. But he really caught fire especially, and plus he was injured for a part of the year. He really caught fire in August and September. You know, the top two players this year, the top four players I'll even go with, are Jacob deGrom, Curtis Granderson, Matt Harvey, and Lucas Duda. Rounding that out uh, is Juris Familia, Noah Syndergaard, Johannes Espedes, Michael Conforto, Travis Darneau, Stephen Matz, Daniel Murphy, and last but not least, Mr. Sean Gilmartin. Can't forget Sean Gilmartin. Uh, And, of course, Anna Campbell, who's, Claim to fame, really, at this point, was catching the ball at first base that Bartolo Colon threw behind his back. Uh, and, and, you know, this gave us, this gave us the second-to-last season of Bartolo Colon. I, I have to say that uh, Bartolo's most memorable season has to be the one that he hit the home run in 2016. Uh, but let's, let's not get too deep into that because that is a, a teasing for next week. So uh, let's let's talk a little about the little uh, uh, time machine action right now, guys. Going back into the DeLorean uh, to some uh, 1915 Brooklyn Robins. Uh, uh, you know the the third place finishers, Mike. Look at this. We're with uh, eight games over 500. Didn't really get you anywhere then, but but this was uh this was showing you a little promise with the uh, the 1915 season. Without a doubt, and like I said last week, uh, the McKeevers are in action now, the brothers, and they're the ones who really injected money into the operation by this time uh, because Ebbets needed help building or paying for Ebbets Field. So, uh, you know, if they're turning it around, and I won't get into, uh, you know, the next season, but they're starting to turn it around, and the McKeevers are a large part of that. 
and here you have the 1950 New York Giants completely flip-flopping the script with uh, finishing eighth in the National League with the 69-83 record. Uh, I, I know, Greg, this is your grandfather team. Uh, if you'd like to talk a little bit about the, the 1950 New York Giants. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, Sam. I don't really know much about the 1915 Giants without having uh, baseball reference open uh, to their page. The eighth uh, place thing, though, does ring a bell uh, that, that it was a bottoming out uh, just, what, two years after you know, a great run of three National League championships. Uh, obviously, the, the, the National League mojo had moved south that year to Philadelphia, their one and only pennant until 1950, uh, which <laughs> became their two and only pennants until 1980. Uh, so, and they uh, wound up getting swept uh, by the Red Sox uh, and that uh, pitcher Babe Ruth. Uh, honestly, uh, I don't remember that much in my uh, my 1915 Giants history without uh, looking looking it up. Um, you know, World War One had started, was not yet, uh, you know, involving America. So, you know, the the, the players for whom uh, who were kind of connected to uh, to World War One war, where the Giants are concerned, that that was uh, not yet a factor. Um, I have to be honest; I I don't even remember if Christy Mathewson was still a Giant in 1915. Or he, he was still a Giant, sir. Okay. Okay, thank yes. you. Yes, uh, I know he he was on his way to the Reds before uh, you know the tragedy of of uh, World War One. Obviously, Eddie Grant uh, would 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 suffer the ultimate uh, sacrifice, uh, you know, le- leading to the, the plaque that uh, that lived in the Polo Grounds all those years after. Uh, but you know, by 1917, uh, despite all the turmoil, uh, they were back in the World Series. So um, you know. Maybe maybe a hundred uh, plus years later, we can take some sort of solace in watching a team that was a World Series uh, participant three years running, fell to uh, the bottom of their league, and was back at it a couple of years later. So uh, and then you know after a lull, they were uh, a constant in the twenties, the first half of the twenties in the World Series. So uh, something. So something to take inspiration from, perhaps. It's interesting about this Giants team. Um, Jim Thorpe, who did not make yep. his name in baseball, but uh, he wo- he uh, was on this team uh, with a two thirty one batting average. And uh, that that's something interesting. Uh, Mike, you obviously have some information, of course. Uh, you're, oh, no, you're I, full I, of I was going to throw Jim Thorpe out there as well, uh, that he was on the team. Uh, other than that, uh, this team also featured Fred Brainerd, uh, which is a, a relative of Asa Brainerd, uh, one of the professionals ever when baseball went from amateurism to professionalism uh, at the turn of the 75-76 uh, season. Uh, or I should say, actually, we should turn that back and actually say the turn of the 69, or the turn of the 70-71 season when the National Association started. But, uh, you know, uh, a connection there. And uh, as we said with Christy Matthewson, he's up there in age. He's 34 now, and he's already struggling. You know, he uh, he pitched 27 games. He appeared in 27 games. He went 8-14 and 14 with a 3.58 ERA. People can only hope to struggle as well. 
But, uh, yeah, this is Christy Matthewson's career winding down, and, of course, he uh, suffered irreparable damage in, in the war as well with nerve agent gas. Utility player high up pockets Kelly. That is quite <laughs> quite the ball name right there. Uh, Rich, I know you you like to um, I know you have some some interesting things uh, that that you observe when whenever we uh, we uh, mention any of this uh, historical stuff and and lately you've also been noticing some of the uh, the Yankee statistics in the Yankees uh, years. Uh, but what, what I'd like to uh, to segue over to you, I, I wanted to uh, mention that the 1950 New York Yankees, it's the era where it's just lovely seeing this interlocking NY next to a record of 69 and 83. You know, isn't it interesting how that franchise, I don't know, uh, when, when you don't study a team's history, it's sort of fill in the blanks with what you know. You know, and when we started doing this, I, you know, the Yankees, I always thought of a proud franchise, you know, all this stuff. But, but when you look at it, you know, some of the stuff we've been talking about over the past few shows, the Yankees were named the Highlanders until, until you know, right around 1910 or actually a little, a little after that. Um, they played polo grounds. There was no such thing as Yankee Stadium. And they stunk. I mean, let's be honest. They're bad for, for a lot of years. <laughs> And, and I love it. And, and in 1915, they were 69 and 83, as you noted. They finished fifth in the American League. I, I always like looking at the attendance, which um, which I'm not seeing at the moment. But you know, but they've been averaging in the past few shows. We've been talking about their 11, 12, 13, 14 teams. They've been averaging less than 400,000 a year. And when you divide that by, let's see, this is a um, 154 game schedule, so that would mean 80. Um, no, I'm sorry, 70. 70. Uh, somebody help me with the math here. Why am I struggling? 77. 70, but we, we we also don't know about double headers and whatnot. So true. So roughly, and there are a lot of double headers. So maybe 60 openings, we'll say 60 openings with 400,000 people. So you're talking about you know what 6,000 a game, a little more like six maybe 6,500 a game if my rough estimates are anywhere close. So we're looking at average attendance, certainly in the single digits, right? I think we, we can say that. And certainly not averaging 10,000 a game. So, you know, the mighty New York Yankees were just finalizing their logo. Um, they still were not doing well. And, uh, you know, evidenced by their fifth-place finish, which was basically consistent with what they've done the past several shows that we've talked about them. And... Um, you know, and it really wasn't until the 20s when the Yankees became the force. So if you were a, a National League fan in, in New York at that point, um, great. You know, you, at least you had teams that were competitive. The, Yan- the Yankees were uh, basically on a, on a consistently somewhat low trajectory. Uh, obviously, they skyrocketed a few years later. But, yeah, it's interesting to see, right? And, and then, I, like Greg, I, I always like to think about what was going on in the world at that point, right? So 1915, as Greg noted, World War One had broken out. U.S. didn't get involved until 1916. Um, so you had that going on. There was no such thing as obviously no such thing as a night game that didn't happen until 1938. Um, games were rarely broadcast on the radio. So if you didn't go to the game, you know you had to pick up the newspaper and, and see what happened to your team the next day. And the thing that always amazes me is how these guys got around. Now, granted, they played doubleheaders. They didn't play seven days a week, probably more like five. But transportation was on trains. 
Um, so if, if the Yankees, you know, finish the series at, at uh, Polo Grounds or ultimately Yankee Stadium, they'd have to jump on a train, head over to where? where Philadelphia, play the Philadelphia A's, uh, wherever it may be. It just and, – and think about that. You know, these guys all had other jobs in the off season. These guys, as you guys have been talking about, fought in war with guns and people trying to kill them. You know, we don't see that now. It, think about how different it was, man. You know, baseball is a part-time job. They were, um, they were soldiers. They were farmers. They were all these things in addition to being baseball players. And uh, I don't know. I, I find this fascinating. I find the context to be the most fascinating part. When you think about what was going on in the world and, and what this sport looked like then and, and how much it's changed. Yeah, we mentioned this, I think it was last episode of the episode before regarding how, you know, these guys were farmers, these guys were were blue-collar workers, and, uh, you know, uh, I think it it was in the context of Gil Hodges walking out to take Cleon Jones out, and how if anybody did that now, if Mickey Calloway were to do that to Yolanda Cespedes, how the agent would be on the phone, like, in a matter of moments. Um, (laughs) So that's what, you know, uh, what you're talking about in terms of the context of the era, too. That's what it makes me think of, uh, Rich. Uh, yeah, it's 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 absolutely fascinating. Um, and real quickly, before we move past uh, 1915, um, High Pocket uh, Kelly was a utility infielder at the time for the uh, the Giants in 1915, but he did, he did go on to have a Hall of Fame career. He was voted in the Veterans Committee in uh, 1973 uh, as a player, and he, um, you know, he, he was hitting 100, you know, 1924, he had 136 RBIs uh, with a 324 batting average for the the Giants. So uh, high well, pocket yeah. Kelly started his career out early. That was his rookie year in uh, in 1950. Age 19. If I may, Sam, I am now, you know, examining the roster of the 15 Giants, three future Hall of Famers, not not that anybody knew what a Hall of Fame was either, in 1915. <laughs> a lot of, uh, really, a lot of legendary characters on this team all getting together and having a bad year, I suppose. But uh, you you have Fred Merkel, you have Fred Snodgrass, two, two of the more infamous characters in terms of, you know, plays that uh, <laughs> did, not, did not go their way. Uh, you mentioned Jim Thorpe, who who would be having all kinds of Gatorade commercials today, I imagine. And you know, uh, one of one of my favorite Giants, uh, not so much for what he did, but for what he said, Larry Doyle, who uh, gave, gave the world the the, uh, the, the quote uh, that lives on, uh, often attributed to other, you know, fill in the blank here, but uh, it's great to be young and a giant. Uh, Occasionally, people have said it's great to be young in a blank, but it was Larry Doyle who brought that phrase to light. And I, I should point out, uh, written up in the Sporting News, uh, a mere 48 years later, living upstate New York and had become a Mets fan and talked about how much he uh, he enjoyed watching them on television. So, uh, you know, you, you tend to, I don't know, forget or, or just hard to imagine that a lot of these guys lived into you know, what we would consider, you know, the contemporary, certainly not the 21st century, but we're still around by the time the Mets were invented and by the time some of us were born. And, uh, you know, gave interviews uh, 
to uh, Lawrence Ritter that became glory of their times, one of the most revered baseball or any kind of oral histories that's ever been, which also I've, I've read, you know, helps explain why so many giants from that era eventually were, were elected by the Veterans Committee because, uh, you know, the, much of what they were going by, uh, the, the statistics only told so much. Uh, a lot of it was anecdotal. And uh, a lot of these guys got their, their old friends on the team and uh, their, their legend on, in the Hall of Fame, I should say. And, you know, their legends were only enhanced by uh, books like The Glory of Their Times. So uh, down here at the Polo Grounds, but uh, like I said, good, good times were still lay ahead uh, for, for John McGraw's organization uh, before, uh, you know, that, that, that interlocking NY that Rich mentioned uh, kind of found its traction. Yeah, that is interesting. It's it's something that I thought about when watching the movie Cobb, how all those guys did bleed into the the uh, the modern era. But you kind of you you forget about that. Um, and and for instance, you know, I always think about Rogers Hornsby as part of the the early part of the 20th century. But uh, Greg, if if I uh, correct me if I'm I'm wrong, was he the hitting coach for the early part the early New York Mets? Yeah. The first season, uh, uh, he, the hitting instructor, I guess he was there during the season. The reason I'm, I'm hedging, I mean, I know that's been his title uh, as long as I've been aware of Rogers Hornsby and the Mets, but the hitting coach wasn't a day-in, day-out position, really, until the late 70s. So, you know, in a way, that was sort of innovative to have Rogers Hornsby on hand. He was certainly there in spring training, and I guess he traveled with the team to a certain degree. But yeah, Rogers Hornsby. Uh, well, hell, Casey Stengel was you know he was was playing uh, professional baseball in 1915, and we know that uh, he was certainly on the scene uh, with the Mets in 1962. He was the scene with the Mets in 1962. So uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you, you kind of have to do the math almost and realize that 1915 for for those of you know, certainly as long as I've been alive, it sounded ancient, but really. It was, uh, gosh, 47 years before the Mets were, were uh, formed. So what is 47 years ago from today in the other direction was 1971. Now, not recent uh, by any means, but doesn't sound ancient exactly, probably because, you know, some of us were alive then. And, you know, remember, you know, Joe Torre being MVP and Nolan Ryan still being a Met and Tom Seaver winning 20 games. And God knows that doesn't sound like 1915. <laughs> but, uh, you know, compared to 2018 uh, versus 19, you know, what 1915 was to 1962, it really was, you know, another time. But I, I think the difference in how we perceive things, honestly, is that we have footage. Uh, even though 1971... Most of the footage you see is kind of grainy. It's usually in color. Uh, most of it is either from the All-Star Game, the World Series, or, ironically, from Mets highlight films because that not every game was televised, videotape wasn't saved. You were still about maybe 10 years away from people having the good sense to preserve everything and televise everything. So, you know, I, I not, not to go off uh, off track here, but I just have the sense that, you know, nostalgia is never – nostalgia ain't what it used to be because everything never really goes away the way it used to. I mean, if uh, I think about my parents who grew up in the 30s and 40s, 
you know, once they heard shows on the radio, they were gone, basically. They went to the movies and saw shorts and cartoons and features and until television came along, you know, that most of that stuff, unless it was uh, going to become a classic, disappeared. Uh, nothing disappears now. YouTube uh, captures everything. We save everything. We never shut up about things. <laughs> so um, I think uh, it, it, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, it, it, it's almost precious uh, the way that there, there's anything about 1915. The fact that there's even just numbers and black and white headshots for us to look at and kind of connect with, with what we've read and, and help to hopefully uh, pass some of this along to anybody who cares. Uh, just, you know, again, di- different times. Speaking of different times, Casey Stengel that year, as the Dodgers were starting to rise, unfortunately, Casey Stengel had an off year, uh, batting two thirty seven with a two ninety four on base percentage. Uh, now, he was this was never his game, really. He uh, hit three home runs and 50 RBIs, but that was a little bit of a lackluster batting average. Um, so it, it is remarkable, though, that we're even able to, to look at Casey Stengel and, and see what he looked like before the only image we ever had for so long of Casey Stengel, which was of him almost winking <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. moving his eyebrows slightly while he's he's in that net uh, Mets outfit and and I I I went through a Yankee phase, but I don't I I I think that Casey Stengel will forever be for me a New York National League folk, even if. As a manager, he made his name in the American League eventually. There was something that once he came back to the Mets, it felt like because of his history with the the, uh, the National League in New York, he was home. And um, it, it, he's still, you know, you still see this photo of him, which is uh, the one on baseball references him in a Giants gear. But he still has this goofy look on his face, <laughs> even though – you know, he wasn't as much of a goof. He was a goofball, but he wasn't that same, like, kind of goofball you kind of become as an old man that kind of contributed, I think, to a lot of the the, uh, the aura that Casey Stengel provided. Um, it, I, I love young Casey Stengel era because it, it's one of the most le- – it's the least talked about of his, his uh, uh, time in baseball, as well as it's the least documented from a – from a, a video standpoint. So it really is a, a fascinating era for sure. Um, I'm, well, this, uh, we're going to segue this was, now. This was the era where he's, he's lifting up his cap and letting a bird out. Uh, I think yes. I made it in 1916. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Casey didn't suddenly become kind of a flake in 1962. This, this was who he was basically his entire life in baseball. And uh, just, just to add what you said about uh, the National League and, and New York and Casey, if you've uh, seen uh, what, what SNY builds as the 1962 Mets yearbook, which is a fantastic special filmed in spring training uh, the very first year, and they, they showed a little clip of it uh, during a game recently where you see Ralph uh, and Bob and Lindsay interviewing him before the Mets have played a single game. Ralph says to him, well, Casey, welcome back to the National League, as if we were waiting for him this whole time. That uh, the uh, what it, however many years it was, twelve seasons, uh, managing the Yankees to ten pennants and seven World Series was was it was just an interlude to his uh, true destiny. So I think you're onto something there, Sam. 
and they were both pirates too, which is interesting. The the Ralph connection, Ralph uh, uh, Ralph Kiner connection, uh, and also I believe that the the bird and Mike, you can uh, certainly help confirm this. Uh, he put the he he released the bird from his under his cap when he was a pirate coming back to uh, to Ebbets Field, correct? I think that's the way the story goes. I can't say for sure. I think, that's I think he was a pirate, not a giant yet. Because if let me let me click on him real quick, and and, and then we'll we'll segue back. But he um oh why did it it gave, it gave me his managerial uh thing here here's his uh there it is uh yeah yeah Pittsburgh Pittsburgh was the next team. He didn't make it to the Giants until 1921. So it was while he was he was with Pittsburgh. Although he made a brief stop in. Uh, uh, Philadelphia as well, uh, before eventually finishing his career as a Boston Brave. So we are going to segue to number 15 uh, in this uh, uh, this episode, number 15. We're going to talk about the Mets to wear, number 15. And uh, I'm going to go right to you, Greg, on this one, because there's so many names that, that like, just when, when, when I think about the uh, number 15 – there, I do have my my uh, names that stick out to me, of course, from this list. But we were just talking about 1962, and when when you you see this, you go all the way back to Al Jackson. You got to start there. Yeah, uh, little Al Jackson, as Bob Murphy forever called him. Uh, you know, you feel really bad for the pitching staff of the 1962 Mets. Uh, maybe not as bad as you do for Jacob Degrom in 2018, in terms of uh, you know what it does to his one loss record. But you know, Al Jackson, by all consent, was uh, all concurrence, was not a 20 game loser type of pitcher. But he lost 20 games twice for the Mets, and you know, survived <laughs> to a, a long career. In baseball, uh, in the Mets organization, most of it uh, came back in another number to play a uh, a role uh, in 1969 before um, before the miracle really took hold. Unfortunately, he was sold to Cincinnati, but uh, he still is up there. If I'm not mistaken, in the top ten in mo- most career shutouts as a Met, which if you think about, is incredible. Uh, he threw 15. Was it 15? Sure. Well, I want to say. 15 shutout innings, some, something insane like that one day in 1962 while wearing number 15, they lost. Um, he also threw the first one-hitter that year. So, uh, you know, he, he gave number 15 its benediction. Uh, and, as, you, know, you know, to this day, uh, Ron Darling, who, you know, studied under Al Jackson, certainly uh, benefited from his tutelage as a young pitcher, uh, speaks the world of him. Al Leiter speaks the world of him. Remember, Al, Al Jackson came back as the Mets bullpen coach in 1999 after the purge of coaches uh, when they looked like Bobby Valentine was going. But, uh, you know, number 15 will always be defined, I think, uh, certainly if you're a fan in my era growing up. And really, if you've watched enough Mets baseball, known enough Mets baseball, the second guy to wear number 15 is number 15, and that's Jerry Grody. Um, boy, I, th- I think we, I, th- I think I may have been on the show with you when, when the, your other show when it was number 115. We may have gone through this, but it bears repeating. Uh, you know, Jerry Grody was, you know, this side of Johnny Bench, not very far from Johnny Bench. Uh, you know, one of the great defensive catchers of his time. 
of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, certainly the backbone of those great pitching staffs that, that won you a World Series and won a pennant and, you know, a, certainly a hothead. But uh, everybody dealt with that because he was that good a catcher. Certainly, uh, you know, I, I'm always uh, impressed that when Tom Seaver gave his Hall of Fame speech, you know, he talked up, his, as he put it, my three main catchers, uh, you know, Jerry Grody, Johnny Bench, and Carlton Fisk. Well, two of those guys are in the Hall of Fame with Seaver. And one guy, because he was not that kind of a hitter, you know, had to settle for being in the Mets Hall of Fame. But it's a well-deserved spot. Um, I, I think his place in Mets history gets a little overshadowed because of the great catchers who were also great sluggers who would come later. But, uh, you know, you cannot think about 1969 and 1973 and really a, a decade of, you know, great names and dates and games without thinking of Jerry Grody. And uh, all due respect to everybody who followed wearing number 15, including a future Hall of Famer, most likely in Carlos Beltran, who, again, certainly, uh, you know, if, if that was your era of Mets baseball, you'll always think of Carlos, and uh, rightly so. But, uh, you know, it's every, to, me, to me, everybody lines up uh, in number 15 behind Jerry Grody and probably behind Carlos Beltran. And, you know, after that, uh, I think it's a matter of uh, picking and choosing. I'll throw out one, one more name, very important, uh, to a great Mets team, Matt Franco, uh, one of the great pinch hitters in Mets history, gave us uh, perhaps uh, all due respect to Dave Malicki uh, as we're on the eve of the Subway Series, uh, the greatest moment, certainly the greatest I ever experienced in, in a ballpark where the Mets and Yankees were both playing. Uh, July 10th, 1999, his walk-off single, plating two runs against the great uh, Mariano Rivera to win a back-and-forth game 9-8. to eight. I'll never forget that feeling. I'm, I'm just now getting my voice back from screaming 19 years ago out of the uh, the excitement of that RBI, uh, the two RBIs. So um, num- number 15, uh, maybe not lately, maybe not since Beltron, more more than fleetingly, but uh, we've we've had some good memories in that number. I got to go with Fred Lewis here. I mean, sorry, I can't even I can't even uh, run with that one. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I have to say, Rich, when you look at number 15, uh, I think Greg makes some excellent points all over. Um, I think without a doubt, even though he is infamous, Carlos Beltran is the best player on this list. Oh, for sure. The best, the most talented player, for sure. And, you know, Met fans have their, um, their own take on Beltran. You know, I'm in the camp of he was great and had one moment that, um, I, I I don't know how many hitters in the in baseball could have hit that pitch, and you know anyway. So I I don't look at that as any big mark failure on Beltran's part. I look at him as having been a great Met, um, and and by far the most talented of anybody to wear 15. Now of course, being of the same era as Greg, um, Jerry Grody will always define the number to me because of the primacy factor. He was wearing it when I became a Mets fan. And, and you know, um, and Greg mentioned his temper. Greg, remember, Mike, remember when, when Grody would be angry behind the plate, like the pitcher would be, would be missing, not hitting location, and Grody would stand up and fire the ball back to the pitcher. <laughs> he, oh, he would. He would throw back a pee. Would you want to be that pitcher right then and there? I, I mean, like, I, it would be like upsetting your father. You know what I mean? 
um, that, that's, how, that's the way Grody commanded that team. So anyway, as I look at the list, Sam, you know, um, in addition to the names uh, Greg mentioned, I want to go to Jose Vizcaino. I was always a big Jose Vizcaino fan when he was in Met. He, he was my kind of player. The guy was good defensively, you know, a singles hitter, um, solid in every aspect of the game, not spectacular, but solid in every aspect of the game. And lo and behold, who beats the Mets in game one of the 2000 World Series innings? Jose Vizcaino. Um, so there's a guy who, you know, both ends, both ends of the candle. He was a good Met, solid guy goes somewhere else and commits the ultimate sin beating the team in, in the World Series. So this Cayeno certainly um, had an impact. Um, looking at the rest of this list, you know, I'll, I'll go to a different um, – I'll take a different tone on it, and I'll, and I'll talk about Darnell. Because – and I know obviously you changed the number to afterward, but he wore 15. Let's remember one thing. Darno is a disappointment for a lot of reasons, some of which are out of his control. I've never felt that if a guy gets hurt, you know, you, you should blame the player. I mean, come on. You know, the guy, guy plays the game, he gets hurt. It's not his fault. That, that's not the issue. But we remember that when Sandy traded Ari Dickey for Cindergaard um, and also Darno and also Becerra, who I saw last night, actually, I'm down here in Fort Myers, um, you know, Darno was the key guy they wanted. Darno was the guy. And it's a shame because he was supposed to solve the catching situation for a while. Um, it just hasn't worked out. You know, he had a couple of moments when he hit the ball off the home run apple in the in the LCS against the Cubs. And then if you remember in game four, he had a home run against the Cubs to help, you know, pad the lead early in that game. But other than a couple of shining moments, Darno. And I do think his Mets days are over. Um, we'll have to go down as a, a fairly substantial disappointment. So while I like this Tyano a lot um, and wanted to talk about him at 15, um, I do think it's important to talk about a guy who wore 15 who maybe uh, didn't live up to expectation and disappointed us. So those are my comments on number 15. I got to make an honorable mention for uh, lifetime minor leaguer Val Pascucci. He was yes. just um, finally got his moment in 2011 and, and tied the game against uh, Cole yes. Hamels uh, that we ended up winning. I remember that. Um, George Foster, you got to yeah, mention go. for the in terms of infamy, uh, it just never worked out, Greg, for George Foster in the New York Mets. Yeah, George Foster. After uh, you know, you, you get through the uh, the cream of the crop is sort of in that next tier in my mind. Uh, you know, that handful of player acquisitions that the Mets have made where you, you rub your eyes and you can't believe your ears. God, we got George Foster. And within that subset, a subset where the acquisition was the highlight, you know, sort of to you put it in a more recent although at this point, not that recent uh, context, Robbie Alomar, uh, that, that, that sort of sensation. I can't believe we got this guy. And then you spend the rest of his Met tenure being let down. I mean, listen, George Foster had some big home runs in his second, third, fifth years as a Met. 
was a building block in his way of a team that rose from the depths. But his first season was just atrocious, and his last season was kind of a foot-in-mouth situation, unfortunately, and at, at which point his bat no longer backed him up. So it was just... It, it was just never a good match. Uh, but, you know, getting him was an incredible feeling because this guy was the DI guy in the National League for the previous five or so years. And the Mets never had anybody like George Foster. And unfortunately, the impact was taking a really great player, putting him on a bad team. And now it was just a bad team with a guy who used to be a great player. But, uh, you know, I think it was 28-90 uh, in terms of traditional power numbers in 1983. Uh, they, they would level off in 84 and 85. But, you know, he was a 84, the year where, you know, they rose from the dead and surprised everybody, Carter. And you, you know, were still seeing what Daryl Strawberry could become. Uh, George Foster was the big veteran power bat, obviously, Keith Hernandez was, you know, a huge factor as well, but, you know, Keith Hernandez was never a home run hitter. So, you know, he did some good things. I, I really, you know, wanted to believe he was always just, you know, one hot streak away from being the guy he was in Cincinnati. But, you know, he just, I, I don't think his personality was uh, cut out for New York. I don't think the fans were really very patient with him. And, you know, we're, we're sitting here, you know, waxing uh, nostalgic for everybody but him. Um, everybody this side of Fred Lewis. So, um, you know, he was part of that era. Got to work, you know, the fact that they gave him a World Series ring back when the Mets were being kind of tight ones about guys who were not on the World Series roster. Um, Foster, Bruce Bereni, and um, I'm blanking on the, oh, Ed Lynch. You know, mm-hmm. we're like, the largesse, the largesse of Frank Hash, and eventually he was shamed into uh, you know giving out some further World Series rings to players who were only there part of the season didn't participate in the postseason. You know that, now that's de rigueur, but it, it you know it showed that the the organization, even as they were sending him out of town, you know, appreciated Foster's contributions and his teammates for the most part from those that era for those men still speak highly of him. So, you know, it was not for naught. You know, what did you give up? Alex Trevino, Charlie Paleo, and uh, Jim Kern, who never wore a Mets uniform. And was, you know, the, in the, again, as I say, it was only money. And in those days, it was a lot of money, you know, whatever it was, a couple of million a year, which was insane for 1982. <laughs> but um, I noticed also that in the 15th, you have a lot of guys who, like, like tried it on and decided they didn't like it or, or came to it after a, a, the fact uh, you know, Juan Darling tried being 15 for a while. Rick Aguilera tried being 15 for a while. Uh, you know, Darno tried being 15 for a while. And uh, these are not the numbers necessarily identified with them. Um, it hasn't really fit on anybody since Beltron. I think it's interesting you mentioned Pascucci. It's, you know, we're talking about Beltron, future Hall of Famer, best uh, all-around player perhaps that the Mets ever had. Uh, and if I'm doing the math correctly here, about six weeks later, they gave his number to Val Pascucci. Uh, all due respect to Val Pascucci, <laughs> who I think was having a pretty good year in Buffalo. Uh, they called him up, and he did hit that home run off Cole Hamill. 
But uh, hey, not, not, nice way to treat your your all-time center fielder, according to the uh, the 50th anniversary team that they put out, uh, you know, just the following June. So um, you know, we we are waiting, I think, right. for another 15 to arise uh, from these streets. Uh, Louis Guillaume, the most recent among them, and uh, I guess uh, his uh, his story is yet to be written in full. Mike, uh, I got to segue over to you. Last but not least, for you. Real quick, uh, staying on George Forster, I, you know, it was a bold move on on Frank, uh, excuse me, Frank Cashin's part. Uh, I remember the New York Post in particular going, you know, gaga over the acquisition, and I remember reading uh, some scribe wrote, you know, that they were instant contenders now between him and Dave Kingman. They were going to be bouncing balls off the Diamond Vision scoreboard. So uh, that, I, that's a vivid memory because I used to wait for my pop to get home. So uh, he brought the papers home, and that's when I'd read them. And uh, I remember that. I remember reading that like it was yesterday. Oh, Mets are instant contenders. No, it didn't work out as well as we, we would have liked. Uh, but it was a bold move nonetheless. Uh, and Jerry Grody, you know, he's the man. He's, like Rich said, the first guy uh, that it's been my pleasure to see wear number 15 uh, for the Mets. And, uh, you know, he had a, a great way of putting an exclamation point uh, on on strike three. If there was nobody on, he chucked that thing down to third, or, you know, he, he rubbed it in about his face when he tossed that ball back to the mound in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Jerry Grody used to get his point across, uh, without a doubt, and I used to love that about him. Yeah, that um, that must have been awesome. I just, I, you know, I just, Sometimes I, I hear you guys talk about it, and I'm so uh, envious that you guys got to live through that era. But you know, it, it is what it is. Everybody's got their time. So what, what are you what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, Cordell Washington well, deserves an honorable mention. <laughs> you know, go ahead. Go no, ahead. Claudel, Claudel Washington deserves an honorable mention. I, I was already a fan of his when he was with the A's, and uh, I, I thought the Mets were getting some uh, far better than what he turned out to be. Nonetheless, uh, he he was uh, he was uh, um, uh, uh, on the list of good guys when he played for the Mets. Three home run afternoon in Los Angeles. Yep. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and I think the Mets. Greg, tell me if I'm wrong here, but the Mets wanted to retain him after the 1980 season, but the Braves outbid the Mets for him, and that's exactly yeah. What they uh, t- Ted Turner swooped in. I, again, I think it was like seven hundred thousand a year. Again, the numbers that just. Well, you know, for regular people are still extravagant, but for for baseball today seems laughable. But then it was, you know, I don't know what it was, five years, 700000 a year, something like that. He was, he was there for a while. Um, yeah, I remember clearly was part of the plan. I mean, he was Frank Cashin's first acquisition, really, in, uh, other than you know, minor league deals that I'm, I'm not thinking of. He was really the first major league acquisition. Uh, of the Frank Cashin regime. You know, Cashin comes in that February, really has no time to put together a team other than what he inherited. And the White Sox, for whatever reason, had soured on Claudell Washington and took a minor leaguer. And, yeah, you know, it was like, again, it wasn't quite on the the level of, oh, my God, we got George Foster, but it was still kind of significant. Claudell Washington had been a, an all-star at least once for Oakland, had come up when he was nine. Part part of the, their last world champion of that era, and uh, you know we you know didn't have for the most part players who you could imagine playing in 
the World Series. <laughs> They're playing on all-star teams except for, you know, the fact that they had to take somebody. So uh, it was a step up in class. And yet, you know, they still, I think, ha- had kind of a hard time fitting him in. Uh, the, the Mets were always kind of trying to figure out what to do with Joel Youngblood. And Lee Mazzilli was, uh, you know, starting to play some first base. And Mookie Wilson would be coming up by September. So, uh it's hard to think of a team that lost 95 games having a log jam in the outfield, but, uh, you know, I, I thought Claudel was going to be around for a while. Unfortunately, he went to, uh, he went to Atlanta. Eventually, uh, I don't know that it was his last stop, but he played for the Yankees in 87, uh, was leading them into first place right around this time of year. You know, the, the narrative was, boy, the Mets have fallen apart and the Yankees are the hot team in New York. And Claudel was their, you know, their clubhouse leader. And there was a phrase that made it into the papers, the, the drive for 90 Gs, because he convinced the team that they have to win the World Series, because if they do, the World Series share is about $90,000 in 1987. And uh, the, this was considered a, uh, you know, that this is where New York is going. Uh, the, we're all going back to the Yankees now. And instead, the Yankees fell apart. I don't remember what Cornell Washington did. And, uh, you know, the Mets made that unfortunately doomed run, but uh, kind of, you know, wrestled uh, New York back into their grips at least for a few more years. So um, he was a good player. And uh, sorry he didn't stick around longer. And, uh, yes, another uh, another number 15 who, uh, who, who gave it uh, some merit. I would finish this number 15. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to second what was said about Jose Vizcaino before and and add the fact he went 9-9 for in 1996 at one point, which is, I (laughs) believe, the Met record. I think Olerud got 15 consecutive times on base, but um, I don't know that he he, he went 9. This was 9 hits and 9 consecutive at-bats. For Jose Vizcaino, which is you know something only a handful of players did, and uh, Vizcaino was a a solid professional. One of you know, we, we talked at the beginning of the show about you know 1993 blowing it up, starting over in a sense to the the extent that they did it. Jose Vizcaino was sort of the uh, the leading edge of that. He was new for '94, like David Segui and a few others, and you know helped kind of lift the Mets out of from being an utter embarrassment to just being not terrible, which being not terrible after being an utter embarrassment is really pretty good. <laughs> and uh, this guy, you know, gave us uh, about two and a half really good years and uh, you know, became Carlos Bayerga eventually with Jeff Kent in that trade. And, yes, uh, as uh, Rich mentioned, uh, came back to haunt us in the 2000 World Series. And uh, uh, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> well, that is the segue you just gave me because what I was going to to mention was that the first World Series baseball game I ever went to and the weirdest baseball memory I have is game one of the Subway Series in 2000. And I won't waste my breath on it anymore. Last word, everybody. That's number 15 for you. Number 15. Uh, let's start with uh, Mike. Mike, your last word. Uh, I I have seven actually. Proper prior planning prevents piss poor performance. I call that <laughs> the seven T's. Uh, as we head into the trade deadline, uh, I mean just that. Have a plan. 
and, and I'm not saying that you need to, you know, reinvent the wheel, but uh, let's get started uh, on, on on a better path, you know. So the seven P's. Perfect. Another P. There you go. <laughs> Inadvertent there. Rich. And this is entirely inadvertent because I planned this before Mike spoke. My word begins with a P as well, and it's perspective. And the reason for that is, yes, the Mets are having a lousy season. and But we're coming off the All-Star break, which is four days of no Mets baseball. And for those of us like me who say, this sucks, I, you know, this is painful every night, it's better than not having it. So the All-Star break gave me good perspective that, I love baseball. I love the Mets. I can't wait to have them back, even though they're driving me crazy this year. So perspective. So another key, Greg, I guess there's a lot of pressure on you to follow <laughs> up. <laughs> well, that's uh, only uh, apropos. Okay, it's not a P word. Um, <laughs> first off, Sam, thank, thank you, uh, all you guys, for inviting me on. And I when I, when I said the less said, the better. I, I had no idea you were going to talk about the 2000 World Series game one. So and this guy, you know, so uh, please forgive me for that. Um, I will uh, use uh, this as a last word, a, a plug for uh, somebody I've gotten to know a little bit. Um, the American Masters uh, documentary series on PBS uh, this Monday <laughs> night. Uh, check local listings and certainly uh, you can DVR it because the Mets are playing, but I know it's going to be repeated a lot. Uh, they're profiling Ted profiling Ted Williams. Um, a, a really good film that I got to see, and the reason I got to see it is it was directed by a Mets fan named Nick Davis. Not only a Mets fan, but I learned a reader of Faith and Fear and Flushing, which I greatly appreciated learning, and he reached out to me. And, uh, you know, we've... Uh, We've shared some, uh, you know, Mets misery in the last couple of months, but um, it's a terrific film. Even if you kind of know the Ted Williams story, there's incredible footage. There was just uh, some stuff in the Times today about uh, they they dug up color footage of his last game, his famous uh, last home run. Uh, John Updike wrote about that we all know. Um, just so many different perspectives. Uh, on his career, on his life, uh, I just can't recommend it enough. So uh, you know, keep an eye on uh, whether it's Channel 13 in New York, Channel 21, wherever your PBS affiliate is. And uh, you know, uh, Nick Davis told me, uh, and he's used this quote elsewhere. Uh, As a Mets fan, writing about a Red Sox legend, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So um, there is a tiny little bit of Mets footage in there. I, I won't say what it is, but um, it, it will—it's uh, fleeting and it's incidental. But you—you—you uh, you, you certainly see a couple of Met icons in there, and that—that's always fun. So uh, check that out. And otherwise, I—I I agree with both uh, Mike and Rich. Uh, certainly, the Mets, uh, <laughs> Mets need to uh, tread carefully here in the next 11 days. And uh, I agree here that uh, you know. Four days without Mets baseball is enough. Uh, the fourth night would have been very difficult without the chance to sit down and talk baseball with you gentlemen, so I really appreciate that. And uh, 
tomorrow night, uh, despite the uh, despite the setting and the opponent, uh, I will be very happy to hear play ball at 7.05 p.m. from the Bronx. Hey, Greg, thank you for the plug. We've got to definitely check that out. And, and as always, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. And especially when there's no Mets baseball on, it's nice to fill the void, even if we're talking about some, some sad, dark, and depressing things. But that's the whole point. We can laugh. And that leads me to my last word, just keep smiling. There, we're, it, it, All of this is going to frustrate us, but something that I, I love about Mets fans, is that we always seem to chuckle about the whole thing. As much as it, it's frustrating, as much as the Will Pond, another P, piss us off, we keep <laughs> smiling. And that, that is something that I love about Mets fans and love being a part of this community, is that we keep our perspective and we keep our sense of humor. So thank you guys for helping me keep my sense of humor, and thank you for all of you for joining us on a Metzian podcast. Uh, this is this is uh, what we come here for. So uh, we we finish with as always. Let's go Mets. But like Greg said, I can't wait till tomorrow to hear the words play ball. Thanks everybody. Let's go Mets. Go Mets. Go Mets.